Well, God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. What we're going to look at today is Job and his three friends, the introduction of Bildad. And in Job chapter 8, verse 1, we read, Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? And of course, these are uh, in reference to Job. Bildad, showing little patience towards Job, voices his irritations with Job's response to Elipaz. Barnes on this verse. The words of thy mouth be like a strong wind. The Syriac and Arabic, according to Walton, render this, the spirit of pride fill thy mouth. The Septuagint renders it, the spirit of thy mouth is profuse of words. But the common rendering is undoubtedly correct, and the expression is a very strong and beautiful one. His language of complaint and murmuring was like a tempest. It swept over all barriers and disregarded all restraint, end quote. Verse 3 now. Doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? It is also worth considering that though men improperly apply truth to the wrong situations, the truth itself still retains its own integrity. Hence, though men may speak God's word where it does not apply, it is still the truth. Bildad's words, though spoken by a miserable comforter, are still true words, as God will neither pervert judgment nor deny justice. He cannot deal either unjustly or unrighteously with men. There is nothing for him to gain by doing so, and nothing unrighteous in him that could cause such an action. Therefore, as a fair and just God, he cannot and will not ever judge any man unrighteously. Men reap as they have sown, and they themselves determine their own fate, teaching us that if God executes judgment in men's lives, for either good or evil, it is what is deserved according to His divine laws. To and fear otherwise must conclude God to be a corrupt judge who perverts justice. Benson on verse 3. Doth God, Hebrew eel, the mighty God, as this word signifies, pervert judgment or judge unrighteously? No, this is inconsistent with God's nature, which is essentially and necessarily just, and with his office of governor of the world. Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Hebrew Shaddai, a word that sets forth God's omnipotence and all-sufficiency. These names are emphatically used to prove that God cannot deal unjustly or falsely with men. Because he hath no need to do so, nor temptation to it, being self-sufficient for his own happiness, and being able by his own invincible power to do whatsoever pleaseth him, end quote. This principle that God will not pervert justice is such an important one to consider. It is also included in Elihu's divine and proper reproof of Job, revealed later in the book, where Elihu focuses on Job's false belief that his rights had been violated and justice had not given him a fair chance to appeal his case. See, Job initially thought that if he could defend himself in God's courtroom, then he would be acquitted and proven righteous. Elihu's words to Job are similar to Bildad's, 
yet applied and spoken correctly through the inspiration of the Spirit. Job chapter 34, verse 1 now. Furthermore, Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, O ye wise men, and give ear unto me, ye that have knowledge. For the earth trieth words, as the mouth tasteth meat. Let us choose to us judgment. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job hath said, I am righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. Elihu's reproof stems from Job's own words in Job 27.2. Job 27.2. As God liveth, who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty, who hath vexed my soul. The Cambridge Bible on this. Job, my judgment, as above my right. God has taken this away by afflicting Job unjustly. The state of Job's mind here is altogether the same as before. He still cleaves to God and swears by his name and still charges him with iniquity in his treatment of himself, end quote. Job's belief was that he was treated as a guilty man without a proper trial and ability to defend himself. Thus he infers that God not only perverted judgment, but would not even allow a defense. But in the end, it would be God who would demand of Job for what he had done, and not Job complaining to God about God's unfairness. Job 38.3 The Lord speaking, Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, Job, and answer thou me. Job, after being corrected by the Lord, repeats none of his previous claims against God, but rather confesses his own vileness. Job 40, verse 5. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. This because, after Elihu's and Jehovah's reproof, Job's heart had turned from accusation against God to conviction of himself. The tongue, therefore, that had been used to infer improper justice, now is properly used to admit Job's own sinfulness. Barnes on this. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? Instead of being able to argue my cause and to vindicate myself as I had expected, I now see that I am guilty, and I have nothing to say. He had argued, this is Job, boldly with his friends. He had before them maintained his innocence of the charges which they brought against him, and had supposed that he would be able to maintain the same argument before God. But when the opportunity was given, he felt that he was a poor, weak man, a guilty and miserable offender. It is a very different thing to maintain our cause before God from what it is to maintain it before people. And though we may attempt to vindicate our own righteousness when we argue with our fellow creatures, yet when we come to maintain it before God, we shall be dumb. On the earth, people vindicate themselves. What will they do when they come to stand before God in the judgment, end quote? What is learned here in Job's life should be considered by all men. That it is one thing for the atheist and God-rejecter, and even professing Christian, 
to indict God on this earth, but quite another thing to stand before the majesty of God's power in heaven. One thing for even God's children to question God's judgments in their life, and another to have to give an account of their own. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Christ shall sit on his throne, and every man shall have to give an account of the things done in his body. This will include things done by his tongue, his hand, and his heart. See, all men will have to give an account to the Lord. Job, as perhaps the oldest book of the Bible, then clearly teaches this, that those who complain against God's justice will have to stand and give an account before God's throne. This was true for Job, and it will be true for every man who questions God after Job. Job was the first to have to give an account to God for his thoughts and words, but he will not be the last. It is proper that every man must appear so that they themselves give account. At this time, Jesus will judge impartially according to all that men have done, be it good or evil. Elihu's proper reproof of Job continues, verse 6 now of chapter 34. Should I lie against my right? My wound is incurable without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinketh up scorning like water, which goeth in company with the workers of iniquity, and walketh with wicked men? For he hath said, It profiteth a man nothing, that he should delight himself with God. Therefore hearken unto me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. For the work of a man shall he render unto him, and cause every man to find according to his ways. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. God has forever been blamed by men as being unfair and unjust in his judgments in the earth. It is for this reason that men murmur and make false accusations against God's character, teaching us as well that those who are not thankful for God's grace then murmur against his justice. Exodus 16, verse 7 now. And in the morning, then you shall see the glory of the Lord, for that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we, that you murmur against us? And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which you murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Of course, all grumbling and murmuring is sin and without genuine merit. Yet it is repeated over and over by sinful men who are themselves sinners to the highest degree when they transfer what is in them to God. Whenever also men reap as they themselves have sown and do not like their fruit, then God is generally to be blamed for it. See, sinners as a rule will take little to no responsibility for either their corrupt hearts or sinful actions, so that instead of condemning themselves, 
they will readily transfer injustice to God. Every sinner also, until he comes to possess a broken and contrite spirit, will play and assume the role of being a victim of both God's justice and judgment, foolishly believing that God is somehow wrong in dealing with him. Not until these false beliefs are broken and men see their own sin against God will reconciliation with God become possible. God's judgment is also one of the means by which God instructs men in his righteousness. By judgment, then, God teaches men the error of their ways. By divine judgment, men learn God's righteousness. Isaiah 26, 9. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Barnes on Isaiah 26, 9. For when thy judgments are in the earth, this is given as a reason for what had just been said, that in their calamity they had sought God without ceasing. The reason is that the punishments which he inflicted were intended to lead people to learn righteousness. The sentiment is expressed in a general form, though there is no doubt that the immediate reference is to the calamities which the Jews had suffered in their removal to Babylon as punishment for their sins. Learn righteousness. The design is to warn, to restrain, and to reform them. The immediate reference here was undoubtedly to the Jews, in whom this effect was seen in a remarkable manner in their captivity in Babylon, but is also true of other nations. And though the effect of calamity is not always to turn a people to God or to make them permanently righteous, yet it restrains them and leads them at least to external reformation. It is also true in regards to nations as well as individuals, that they make a more decided advance in virtue and piety in days of affliction than in the time of great external prosperity, end quote. There is no good end for any who falsely accuse a holy God of dealing improperly with them. Opposing and rebelling against God's judgments will only bring increased pain and suffering to those who do so. As none have ever fought with the Lord and won. Proverbs 21.30 There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Isaiah also echoes the futility of men striving with their maker. Isaiah 45.9 Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. Men will never win when they war against God. Neither shall they find any peace in themselves while doing it. He then who fights against God brings trouble to his own soul. If men also continue to blame God for wrongdoing, then they shall remove themselves from his salvation. Accusers of the Lord surely can never be saved by the Lord. Job 8, 4 now. If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression, 
Bildad's words reveal lack of both compassion and love. The death of a child is a great pain, let alone all of one's children. Yet Bildad speaks with no apparent empathy towards Job's calamity at all, teaching us that if men are not prompted by love and led by God's Spirit, then even if what they speak has elements of truth in it, they do not speak for God. 1 Peter 4.8 And above all these things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. If a man does not love, then whatever other thoughts he may have of God and the reasons God will judge men cannot be right. Truly enlightened men also are fully aware that it grieves God's holy character to bring forth judgment on sinful man. Ezekiel 18:23. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God? And not that he should return from his ways and live. So also, 1 Timothy 2, 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Bildad's words continue, but on very shaky and a shallow premise, that if Job were only pure and upright, then God would awake to Job's pain. Verse 5 now of chapter 8, If thou wouldst seek unto God betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee, and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Barnes on this verse. If thou wert pure and upright, nothing could be more unjust and severe, however, than to take it for granted that he was a hypocrite, and then to proceed to argue as if that were a settled point. He does not make a supposition that possibly Job might have erred, which would not have been improper, but he proceeds to argue as if it were a point about which there could be no hesitation, end quote. Bildad speaks of men able to be pure and upright before God as if it were a small thing, as if man in his sinful state could so walk as to be pure in God's eyes. These are the thoughts of a very shallow thinker, who by expressing them shows he has no real insight even to his own sinful nature. All of sin and come short of the glory of God, and only determined sinners, along with religious hypocrites, which Job surely was not, do not know this. True religion also, when it is taught by God, does not make man pure, but rather reveals to him First, how really impure he himself is. Teaching us also that true purity before God is not something which any man can achieve on his own. It is also a false assumption that men's pureness is what allows God to hear their prayers. When the real truth is that every prayer, both heard and answered by God, comes from a sinner. Hence, even godly men are to a degree sinful men. So that if God would only hear those without sin, then none would be truly heard at all. So also, every petition answered by God needs God's mercy for it to be granted. Hence, it is not by human purity that prayers are answered, or even men's needs are met, but solely because of divine mercy. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Lord instructs men when they approach Him to rely on His mercy and not on their own purity. God's throne is spoken of as a throne of grace, where divine mercy is distributed to care for men's needs. It is a place of compassion, whereby through God's good character, petitions made unto him are granted. Thus, if a man leans on himself in trying to gain confidence in God, he will never have it. Yet if his confidence is placed on God's mercy towards him, the boldness to continue to come to God will continue to grow. True faith and confidence in having our prayers answered and petitions granted has its foundation, not in man, but in God. Job chapter 9, verse 1 now. Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? Barnes on this first. The question has never been satisfactory answered except in the Christian revelation. Where a plan is disclosed by which God may be just, and yet the justifier of him that believeth. Through the infinite merits of the Redeemer, man, though conscious that he is personally a sinner, may be treated as if he had never sinned. Though feeling that he is guilty, he may consistently be forever treated as if he were just. The question asked by Job implies that such is the evidence and extent of human guilt, that man can never justify himself. This is clear and indisputable. Man cannot justify himself by the deeds of the law. He can never be justified, therefore, by the law. And it is only by that system which God has revealed in the gospel where a conscious sinner may be treated as if he were righteous through the merits of another, that a man can ever be regarded as just before God. Bildad had spoken of Job as not being pure and upright, and to this Job responds, Who then can be? Again, it is only the self-righteous man, like the Pharisee in Luke 18, who thinks himself worthy in his flesh to stand in God's holy presence. It is also here we see that Job was to a degree aware of his own personal unholiness. As Job did know that sin existed in both himself and his children, perhaps not to the degree that he would later come to realize, but Job was aware of his own inability to be pure before God. The sacrifices that Job made for his children also show us his consciousness of sin, teaching us that Job's lesson, which God needed to instruct him in, was not simply his own vileness, but also confidence in God's righteous judgments. These are two distinct and different truths. For one can moderately know that he is himself a sinner and not at all know God as truly righteous especially in God distributing judgment in the earth. It is thus by learning this second revelation that true humility enters the heart. The truth also is that we can never reach full humility until we accept and agree that God's judgments are fair and equitable. Ecclesiastes 3.17 I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, 
since there is a time for every activity and every work. Verse 7 of Job 8 now. Though, and this is in reference to Job, though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should greatly increase. Gill on this verse. Bildad seems to have spoken under a spirit of prophecy without being sensible of it and not imagining in the least that so it would be in fact, for he only affirms it on supposition of Job's good behavior for the future, putting it entirely upon that condition, which he had no great expectation of it ever being performed, end quote. What Bildad speaks appears to come forth as prophecy, since this would be, in fact, Job's end. Yet it cannot be assumed Bildad was fully aware of it, simply because his lack of spiritual perception also assumed Job a hypocrite. Observe that God may and has spoken through men, even when they do not know it themselves. Hence, even as the Lord can make an ass speak, so can he bring truth out of those totally unaware of it. Verse 8 now, For I inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and this is Bildad's argument, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days upon earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? Bildad, in analyzing Job's condition, has as his argument's foundation the former age, the historical past, and God's dealings with sinners and saints. His argument consists of not simply personal experience, but he draws his conclusions from past history. There is no doubt men can learn much from the past, but the present and the future are always more complicated than a few observations of what is behind us. Life is like a winding river, and though its bends may seem similar, they are all vastly unique. Hence, to simply judge things by what has happened before and make certain conclusions on this shows we have little true wisdom. History and tradition can be one of men's avenues for learning, but it cannot be the only one and must not be overly relied upon. The former ages may teach us some things, but only pride will assume they teach all things. Bildad's words continue to Job. Verse 11 now. Can the rush grow up without mire? Can the flag grow without water? Whilst it is yet in his greenness, and not cut down, it withereth before any other herb. Bildad now makes reference to two marsh plants common in the area, in order to show the short and very limited prosperity of the hypocrite. How hypocrites may flourish for a time, but this time will be momentary until their pretensions catch up with them. Barnes on verse 11. The word rush here denotes properly a bulrush, and especially the Egyptian papyrus. It is derived from the verb to absorb, to drink up and is given to this plant because it absorbs or drinks up moisture. Without mire, without moisture, it grew in the marshy places along the Nile. Can the flag, another plant of a similar character. The word flag, says Gesesis, 
is an Egyptian word signifying marsh grass, reeds, bulrushes, sedge, everything which grows in wet grounds. Jerome says of it, when I inquired of the learned what this word meant, I heard from the Egyptians that by this name everything was intended in their language which grew up in a pool. The word is synonymous with rush or bulrush and denotes a plant which absorbs a great quantity of water, which is the exact idea which this figure is designed to convey. Is not very clear. I think it is probable that the whole description is intended to represent a hypocrite and that the meaning is that he had in his growth a strong resemblance to a rush or reed. There was nothing solid or substantial in his piety. It was like the soft, spongy texture of the water reed and would wilt under trial as the papyrus would when deprived of water and is not cut down. Even when it is not cut down, if suffered to stand by itself and if undisturbed, it will wither away. The application of this is obvious and beautiful. Such plants have no self-sustaining power. They are dependent on moisture for their support. If that is withheld, they droop and die. So with the prosperous sinner and the hypocrite, his piety, compared with which is genuine, is like the spongy texture of the paper reed compared with the solid oak. He is sustained in his professed religion by outward prosperity, as the rush is nourished by moisture. And the moment his prosperity is withdrawn, his religion droops and dies like the flag without water, end quote. Verse 13 now. So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. It must be remembered that Bildad's words concerning Job's downfall consisted of his believing Job to be but a professor of religion and in fact a hypocrite at heart. From Bildad's perspective, Job's world crashed because of the lack of sincerity in Job's faith. Job's life, Bildad inferred, was like these marshy plants that could only endure in the wet season. Hence, where there was only prosperity and not adversity. And though it is true that the hypocrite's hope shall perish, this would surely not be Job's end. On the topic of hypocrisy, its roots go deep in man's past. God's word teaching us that has been prevalent in man since the beginning. So that even in the time of Job, religious hypocrisy was both present and pervasive. Barnes on verse 13. That there were hypocrites even in that early age of the world. They are confined to no period or country or religious denomination or profession. There are hypocrites in religion and so there are in politics and in business and in friendship and in morals. They are pretended friends and pretended patriots and pretended lovers of virtue whose hearts are false and hollow, just as there are pretended friends of religion. Wherever there is genuine coin, it will be likely to be counterfeited. And the fact of a counterfeit is always a tribute to the intrinsic worth of the coin. For who would be at the pains to counterfeit that which is worthless? The fact that there are hypocrites in the church 
is an involuntary tribute to the excellency of religion. The hypocrite has a hope of eternal life. This hope is founded on various things. It may be on his own morality. It may be on the expectation that he will be able to practice a deception. It may be on some holy faults, an unfounded view of the character and plans of God. Or taking the word hypocrite in a larger sense to denote anyone who pretends to religion who has none. This hope may be founded on some change of feeling which he has had and which he mistook for religion, on some supposed vision which he has had of the cross or of the Redeemer, or on the mere subsiding of the alarm which an awakened sinner experiences and the comparative peace consequent on that. The mere cessation of fear produces a kind of peace. As the ocean is calm, and beautiful after a storm, no matter what may be the cause, whether it be true religion or any other cause. Many a sinner who has lost his convictions for sin in any way mistakes the temporary calm which succeeds from true religion and embraces the hope of the hypocrite, end quote. Though what Bill did inferred in reference to Job was not true, what he spoke of the hypocrite's end surely is. This is why if a man wants realistic and future hope in his life, any and all hypocrisy must be avoided. Hypocrites also are those who hear the word but will not by faith and obedience apply it in their lives. And though hypocrites many times like the sound of God's voice, it is not enough for them to obey it. Jesus warned of the consequences of merely hearing God's word without doing it. The Lord warning all men that merely hearing is surely not enough to maintain a Christian walk. Without then doing God's word, Jesus states, there is no hope of men being able to keep their religion secure. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Christ speaking, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And now the opposite, and every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. It is only by the doing of God's word that we will set our lives upon a rock. For only when men's religion is sincere will it be able to withstand and remain in the midst of life's storms. True faith and obedience to God is that alone which will allow men to endure the storms of this world. Returning to Bildad's words to Job, and still in the context of the hypocrite we read, verse 14, whose hope shall be cut off and whose trust shall be a spider's web. He shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. Continuing with the theme that the hypocrite's hope shall perish, reference is made to the spider's web 
Now, even when the spider tries to hold it together, either because of a strong wind blowing against it or another physical force which passes through it, because it is of such a weak building material, it cannot endure. Barnes on this verse. He shall lean upon his house. And again, this is in reference to the hypocrite. This is an allusion to the web or house of the spider. The hope of the hypocrite is called the house which he has built for himself, his home, his refuge, his support. But it shall fail him. In times of trial, he will trust to it for support. And it will be found to be as frail as the web of a spider. How little the light and slender thread which a spider spins would avail a man for support in time of danger. So frail and unsubstantial will be the hope of the hypocrite. It is impossible to conceive any figure which would more strongly describe the utter vanity of the hopes of the wicked. He shall hold it fast, or he shall lay hold on it to sustain him, denoting the avidity with which the hypocrite seizes upon his hope. The figure is still taken from the spider, and in an instance of a careful observation of the habits of that insect, the idea is that the spider, when a high wind or a tempest blows, seizes upon its slender web to sustain itself, but it is insufficient. The wind sweeps all away. So the tempest of calamity sweeps away the hypocrite, though he grasps at his hope and would seek security in that, as a spider does in the light and tenuous thread which it has spun." End quote. It is important to lay stress on the ultimate consequences of hypocrisy, lest men are not warned as to its potential severity, which will result through merely pretending to follow God. Another comparison to the hypocrite is now used. Verse 16, He is green before the sun, and his branch shooteth forth in his garden. His roots are wrapped about the heap, and seeth the place of stones. If he destroy him from his place, then it shall deny him, saying, I have not seen thee. Barnes on this verse. Then it shall deny him, that is, the soil, the earth, or the place where it stood. This represents a wicked man under the image of a tree. The figure is beautiful. The earth will be ashamed of it, ashamed that it sustained the tree, ashamed that it ever ministered any nutriment and will refuse to own it. So with the hypocrite, he shall pass away as if the earth refused to own him or to retain any recollection of him. I have not seen thee. I never knew thee. It shall utterly deny any acquaintance with it. There is a striking resemblance here to the language which the Savior says he will use respecting the hypocrite in the day of judgment. And then will I profess to them, I never knew you, Matthew 7, 23. The hypocrite has ever been known as a pious man. The earth will refuse to own him as such, and so will the heavens, end quote. Other translations of verse 18 show us the denial that even the earth will exhibit towards the hypocrite. The NIV, but when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. The NAS, but when it is uprooted, it is though it had never existed. And the ESV, 
If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Now verse 19 of Job 8. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth shall others grow. Barnes on this. Behold, this is the joy of his way. This is evidently sarcastic. Lo, such is the joy of his course. He boasts of joy, as all hypocrites do, but his joy endures only for a little time. This is the end of it. He is cut down and removed, and the earth and the heavens disown him. And out of the earth shall others grow. This image is still derived from the tree or plant. The meaning is that such a plant would be taken away and that others would spring up in its place which the earth would not be ashamed of. So the hypocrite is removed to make way for others who will be sincere and who will be useful. Hypocrites and useless people in the church are removed to make way for others who will be active and devoted to the cause of the Redeemer, end quote. God's promise is that one day all false religion will be replaced by true religion all false worshipers by true worshipers. Out of the earth shall others grow. This teaches us that though hypocrites may have temporary influence, in the end, only those with genuine faith will inhabit the earth. This is God's promise to Israel, and it will be fulfilled. The wicked, therefore, though they have their day, are promised by God no tomorrow. Hence, there is no lasting and substantial hope for any who do not love, obey, and yield to God through a sincere and pure heart. The hope of the hypocrite is therefore vain, and he would be wise to not pretend otherwise. Verse 20 now. Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, Bildad again speaking to Job, neither will he help the evildoers. Bildad's words now shift to a very general truth, but one which hardly applies to Job simply because, from even God's point of view, Job meets the standard. Pulpit commentary on verse 20. Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man. Bildad winds up with the words of apparent trust in and goodwill towards Job. God is absolutely just and will neither forsake the righteous man nor uphold the wicked one. If Job is, as he says, true to God, upright and humanly speaking, perfect, then he is only to go on trusting God. God will not leave him till he fill his mouth with laughing and his lips with rejoicing. Then they that irritate him shall be clothed with shame and their dwelling place shall come to naught. But if, as we feel instinctively, that Bildad believes Job is not perfect, but an evildoer, then he must expect no relief, no lull in his sufferings. He's obnoxious to all the threatenings which have formed the bulk of Bildad's discourse. He may look to be being cut off like the rush and the flag, crushed like the spider's web, destroyed and forgotten like the rapidly growing gourds. He must look for no help from God but must be contented to pass away and make room for men of better stamp. Neither will he help the evildoers, literally. Neither will he grasp the hand of the evildoers. Though he may support them for a while, he will not maintain them firmly and constantly, end quote. 
Verse 21 now. Till he fill thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing. They that hate thee shall be clothed with shame and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. Bildad concludes that if Job is truly penitent and righteous, then this shall be his end. There is no real sense of certainty in his words. Hence the harsh judgments that Bildad uttered against hypocrites when he speaks of God blessing Job are not nearly as emphatic. Perhaps Bildad's thoughts are like those of so many of us, where we feel certain the wicked will fall, but seem to manifest much lesser faith that the righteous will be rewarded. Yet if one truth of God is certain, so much the other be equally as certain. God's warnings and God's promises thus will be equally upheld by the same holy creature. For the Lord shall certainly bless the saints as he uproots the hypocrite. The justice of God, therefore, demanding that each man receives as he himself is sown. Galatians 6, 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Amen.